Pigs in Space on next. You have to cancel it. I, I remain with my sweetheart, Kermit. Oh, gee, Miss Piggy. Okay, we'll just get someone to take your place. Take my place? I mean, if you want to stay here with him, we'll... we'll... Hi-ho, and welcome once again to A Feat of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, over the last year and a half, people have made a lot of jokes about time being meaningless and, and how things have just seemed to take forever and go by quickly all at the same time. Man, I, I hate, I can't believe I'm saying this, but we're at the end of season two. It's true. Although, to be fair, I spent most of my childhood grounded, so time's been doing that for me for a very long time. <laughs> That's so people so people know you were a troublemaker and a bad boy when you were when you were six. Yeah, that's that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. It had <laughs> nothing to do with having high test scores and low grades. No, it was all bad behavior. <laughs> high test scores, low grades. I know. I know that feeling. I distinctly remember telling my geometry teacher who was trying to give me like a C after I had aced every test. What do you mean you're giving me a C? She's like, you don't do your homework. I go, what's the point of homework? She says to practice. And I pointed at my test scores. I go, does it look like I need to practice, lady? That didn't go over too well. Yeah, my parents thought they were moving distractions. <laughs> I mean, I, I, anyway, this is, a, this is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. We've been watching the Muppet Show two episodes at a time. Anyway, before we get, before we get talking, uh, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media, at Lunatic Daring on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our bibliography, and our watch list. Last week... We, not we, I trended a little negative because I was a little offended by episode uh, uh, 222. Still am, by the way, I don't take any of it back. (laughs) Uh, This week, uh, I feel the opposite. I love these episodes. Uh, I'm glad we're finishing up the season with uh, what I think are a couple of really peak episodes. But um, uh, yeah, well, let's uh, let's get started and we'll uh, we'll go from there. Let's get things started. show. Hey, we're going to have a fantastic show for you tonight because our guest star is one of the reigning geniuses behind Monty Python's Flying Circus, Mr. John Cleese. So Nick, at some point in this episode, John Cleese is going to do a sketch about a parrot. Mm -hmm. That made me laugh maybe harder than anything I've seen all year. But why don't you tell us a little bit about this uh, python? I knew of John Cleese, but I hadn't really looked into him at length. John Cleese, born in Weston Supermare, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, in Somerset on October 27, 1939. He is the only child of Reginald Cleese, who is an insurance salesman. Reginald? Reginald. Reginald Francis Cleese. And his wife, Muriel, who is the daughter of an auctioneer. Now, interesting tidbit, his father's family name was originally Cheese, but... He thought people weren't going to take him very seriously, so he officially had that changed in 1923. He's not wrong. I just, I want to find out that he's related to Richard Cheese, and that that's neither here nor there. Rolling down the street, smoking in no, sipping on chin and juice. Play it back! Boy, my mind, on my money, my money, on my mind. 
want to think that he's played by uh, uh, Method Man. I'm okay with this. This is one of those crossovers that I I hadn't thought of, but I'm I'm going to let this happen. <laughs> the the buddy cop movie that we should have got. Method Man and John Cleese. <laughs> Method Man and John Cleese. Cheese and cheese. <laughs> cheese stands alone. He studied at St. Peter's Preparatory School. He did well in English, cricket, and boxing, which is probably one of the most British sentences that I'll say this side of the podcast. And that's saying a lot. Yeah. He did not go to Cambridge immediately because conscription ended and a lot of people were coming back from war. So there are twice as many applicants as there would have been in a normal year. He continued at prep school for another two years before attending the Downing College at Cambridge. While there, he joined a theater group called the Cambridge Footlights, which I don't think they were necessarily explicitly comedy. I don't know as much about them, but it the way that they're discussed makes it sound a little bit like the Harvard Lampoon. The Campus Humorist Society or something. Something like that, yeah. While at the Cambridge Footlights, he would meet a longtime collaborator in Future Python, uh, Graham Chapman. He would graduate from there in 1963. Shortly before he graduated, he wrote the script and acted in the Footlight Review, A Clump of Plinths, which was successful at Edinburgh uh, Festival Fringe. Because it was so successful there, it was renamed Cambridge Circus, and it was taken to the West End in London, and then it went on tour in New Zealand and eventually made it to Broadway. Some of the sketches would end up on Ed Sullivan in 1964. In 1965, after touring around for a little while, Cleese and Chapman would start writing together and acting together on a series called The Frost Report, which would be their first television appearance. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. (laughs) I am middle class. (laughs) I know my place. The Frost Report would launch a number of British comedians' careers, including Future Pythons Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. That would be five out of the six. Yes. So, something about Cleese and Chapman's working relationship. Cleese has gone on record saying he felt like he would do a lot of the work, or he would be just riffing on an idea for a little while, and Chapman would sit there and listen, and then at some point, speaking of the parrot sketch, he would come up with an idea that would elevate the sketch. So for example, with the, what would become later become the infamous Monty Python sketch, Cleese just knew he wanted to make it something about bad customer service. And he just kept going through all these things that someone might come in to complain about. Uh, Chapman was just like, let's use a parrot that doesn't actually exist. And it's just going to be a dead parrot. It's passed on. (laughs) This parrot is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. This, is a late parrot. <laughs> it's a stiff, bereft of life. It rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed it to the perch, you would be pushing up the daisies. It's run down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. Cleese and Chapman would also write episodes for the first series of Doctor in the House, which ran from 1969 to 1970. And they were starting to gain a lot of clout with the BBC, so they were offered their own series after that. Because of Cleese feeling like he did a lot of the work and also worrying about some of uh, Chapman's growing drinking problems, he didn't want the two of them to be the only ones on the show. So he reached out to Michael Palin, who had been working with Idol, Jones, and the sixth Python, Terry Gilliam, and asked them to come and join them. Bloody Yankee. Yeah. Uh, And that's where we get Monty Python's Flying Circus from. It ran for four series from October 1969 to December 1974. 
please quit the show after the third season. I think he was kind of fed up with it partway into the third season, but he stuck out the third season. Wasn't really part of the fourth, but he would still go on to collaborate with the guys, and he, he stayed with a pretty positive working relationship with the guys. He still went on tour with them, still did the movies. Yeah, he worked on the Holy Grail, the meaning of life, the life of Brian. I want to be a woman. From now on, I want you all to call me Loretta. What? It's my right as a man. Well, why do you want to be Loretta, Stan? I want to have babies. You want to have babies? It's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. You can't have babies! Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing you, Stan. You haven't got a womb. Where's the fetus gonna just take? You're gonna keep it in a box? Here, I've got an idea. Suppose you agree that he can't actually have babies, not having a womb, which is nobody's fault, not even the Romans, but that he can have the right to have babies. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother. Sister. Sorry. What's the point? I haven't seen that one. I've only seen Holy Grail and now for something completely different. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs! Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person! Ah, blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King! You and all your silly English kniggets! What a strange person. We don't know about this as much in the States, but this was a series that I I'd heard. I was working in a youth hostel when I was in college, and a lot of people brought up Faulty Towers the way that we bring up The Simpsons in the States. Which is interesting, because The Simpsons has been going on forever, and Faulty Towers only had two series of six episodes each. Cleese put this together with his then-wife, Connie Booth, who also co-starred in the series. Oh, I see! It's my fault, is it? Oh, of course! There I was thinking it was your fault because you've been left in charge, or Manuel's fault for not waking you, and all the time it was my fault! Oh, it's so obvious now! I've seen the light! Well, I must be punished then, mustn't I? You're a naughty boy! Don't do it! Don't! She's gonna be back at lunchtime! Now wait! Look, I'm a dead man! Do you realize? Easy! You're dead too, but all dead! The interesting thing is, there were two seasons of it, but the first season was produced in 1975, and the second season was produced in 1979. Cleese would be divorced from Booth before the second season, but they they came back together to work on it. And they I think they're, they stayed on pretty good terms for the most part as well. He focused more on film in the 80s and 90s. He had a turn in a production of Taming of the Shrew on BBC. He also had a, a role in Time Bandits as Robin Hood. There was a Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl, which was filmed in 1980. And then he also formed, I don't think it's like a Python-esque thing, but he was in a series of movies with... Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Klein, and Michael Palin, including A Fish Called Wanda in 1988. And Fierce Creatures. And Fierce Creatures in 19, was that 1997? 96, 97, something like that, yeah. And then he would also have roles in The World Is Not Enough as Q's assistant, R, and in Die Another Day, at which point he became Q. Where is this cutting edge stuff? I'm trying to get to it. Weapon, please.
One pane, unbreakable glass, one standard issue ring finger. Twist so, voila. Ultra high frequency, single digit sonic agitator unit. You know, you're cleverer than you look. After Desmond Llewellyn passed away, he became Q briefly. Honestly, my strongest association with him, Don't Be Mad at Me, was probably Rat Race until I saw Monty Python movies later in high school. Is that the Seth Green movie, Rat Race? Uh, I think he was in it. It was the remake of It's a Mad, 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 Right. He also played the character Nearly Had the Snick in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone and in the Chamber of Secrets. He is another one of those actors that does have a number of credits to his name. He's also been active in a couple or in a video game called Jade Empire, which I remember seeing ads for, but I don't know that I ever actually played. Fish Called Wanda is a great movie. Fierce Creatures, not so much, but Fish Called Wanda is a great movie. I mean, we'll, we'll try to keep politics to a minimum, but he did support Barack Obama in 2008. He was also very critical of Trump in 2016, but he also supports Brexit. So he's a complicated man. I follow him on Twitter. I would say he has, I would say he would say he, he actually doesn't have any political leanings, you know, like he seems like he, he seems to fancy himself more of a, more of a pragmatist. There's a weird consistency to it too, which I actually really yeah. respect. I'm like simultaneously of the mind that he would find me very insufferable, but I would also kind of like to meet him at some point just to see what he's actually like. Oh, I do have a John Cleese Hollywood story. Of course you do. Not really. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a, no, it's even briefer than my Steve Martin story. But my wife and I almost ran into him in the middle of Beverly Hills driving through. He was crossing the street. <laughs> and my, I think my wife was with me. And we were driving through Beverly Hills. We were literally on, God, we, I think we were on Santa Monica Boulevard. And this guy's walking across the street. And we're like, oh, I guess I should slow down. And my wife's like, I think that's John Cleese. <laughs> Thank you for not killing John Cleese. He wasn't walking silly enough, so I wasn't 100% sure, but yeah, we, it, it was him. You can't walk silly all the time. Sometimes you got to rest. In, in Cleese, just looking at the, the arc of his biography, there does seem to be a sort of consistency to him and a sort of integrity to him at the same time. In a Reddit AMA, he expressed regret that he had turned down the role played by Robin Williams in The Birdcage, the butler played by Anthony Hopkins in The Remains of the Day, and the clergyman played by Peter Cook in The Princess Bride. I have seen two of those three movies. I've seen all of them. Yeah, that would be interesting. The clergyman and Princess Bride? The guy that was marrying Buttercup and yeah. Upperdink? Yeah, you know what? John Cleese is awesome, but uh, I think it worked out okay. It, it, it turned out all right. All those worked out okay for, for the other actors, I guess. What was the first? The Birdcage? The Birdcage. He, he would have played Robin Williams' role in The Birdcage. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do Fussy, Fussy, Fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. He's still alive, uh, thankfully. Uh, oh, there's also a random other tidbit. There was a, a sketch show called The Whitest Kids You Know where they asked Cleese to show up on the show. It's a sketch comedy show from, like, the 10s. The office of... John Cleese sent them a rejection letter. Their entire sketch, including or involving John Cleese, was them reading the the rejection letter, which doesn't necessarily <laughs> paint him in a positive light, but also makes them look more petty. I'm pretty sure there's plenty of people out there that think he's an asshole. The Muppet Show, episode 223, featuring guest star John Cleese, produced between August 11th and August 13th, 1977. It would premiere in the UK on October 21st, 1977. And in the United States on December 2nd of the same year. It was directed by Philip Casson. And John Cleese actually worked with Jerry Jewell on the script for the episode, which is kind of nice because he's playing such a jerk that you realize that he's open to taking the piss. It's still credited to the 
regular four guys, but yeah, um, it was reported. I read, I think I read it on Muppet Wiki that uh, Muppet Wiki, and they're never wrong. But I, I read it on Muppet Wiki that uh, that yeah, Cleese had. He, here's the thing: that sounds cool that John Cleese had like come in to help on the script, but I don't think that's my guess. Is knowing show business, it wasn't him helping; it was him coming in and going, "I'll do this," but. He seems to be a guy who would want to be in control of everything that he's saying mm-hmm. and doing. I would guess that his rewriting of the script or him helping with the script is maybe a little more nefarious than it sounds. I'm not saying I'm not saying that can have a great outcome. I think it did have a good outcome. I think you can tell actually some of the stuff that's written by him in this. It's just interesting. Whether that was imposed or not, you know. It's possible. I don't I mean, without more information I can't really say, but John Cleese? Oh, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Cleese? John is tied up and gagged, and Scooter and his... Well, it's no use struggling, Mr. Cleese. You can't leave until you've done the show. So we start with a felony. Oh, yeah. It can only go up from there. Although I was not disappointed. I was actually glad that this isn't the runner for the episode, uh, for the episode though. Mm. Like, they don't play this. Yeah. They play him grumpy, but they don't. I thought the whole episode was legitimately going to be that they've kidnapped him and forced him to perform. How are we going to do this? But uh, luckily, it's just an opening gag. Quite literally. That's true. We go to the Muppet Show theme, and uh, Gonzo actually manages to play the trumpet note perfectly, which is a surprise. Nails to- it. Him and Nails it. everyone watching. I am upset I didn't watch this with my girls because I'm sure they would have been very happy for him. <laughs> then we we go to Kermit, who is rushing in for a concussion because Fozzie comes out with a note letting him know, or from the stagehands, letting them know that they're sorry for the heavy weight that they dropped, which narrowly misses Kermit, like you would expect. But then later in that same note that they had time to type and run off, they apologize for the second weight as well, which... Drops in shortly thereafter. I have, I have a question. You think they just had an extra Muppet News sketch laying around? Because that's what this is. <laughs> that's actually a fair question. And it might be. This is just a Muppet News sketch. <laughs> He's reading something off a piece of paper about something that, that's happening physically and that it happens to him physically. But at least they didn't actually land on Kermit because we don't want Jim to break his hand. After last week, I wouldn't mind it landing on Kermit, but go ahead. He's got to get back in my good graces after last week. Fair. From there we go to Lubbock Lou and his jug huggers, and they sing a song called Somebody Stole My Gal. Somebody stole my gal. Somebody stole my pal. Somebody came and took her away. She didn't even say that she was even leaving. The song was written by Leo Wood in 1918, and it's been recorded a million times and used in a number of movies, including Scorsese's The Aviator and 1982's My Favorite Year. Uh, it's a nice bit. I miss seeing Frank Whaling on the stand-up bass. I'm always going to miss seeing puppet Frank Whaling on the stand-up bass. I, I do miss the country trio. It's not fair to Lubbock Lou. It's not Lubbock Lou's fault. I do like the play on words with Jug Huggers because they were definitely trying to get stuff past the radar, which I always respect when they actually managed to do that. I don't know if the term's supposed to be dirty, but in the moment, it feels pretty dirty. I mean, Manamana came from an adult film. It's a documentary. About erotic life in Sweden. Do, 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 do. Did I tell you I watched it? No. I'm yeah, curious. I like, it. I want to see it at some point because I, I want to know what Sweden, movie for- Heaven and Hell. Sweden, Heaven and Hell. Is that what it's called? Yeah, you have to find it through, uh, let's just say, not the most official channels. Of course, of course. Somebody stole my, somebody stole my, somebody stole my. So, before we go into the next bit, I just want to point out the fact that Crazy Harry can show restraint. Up until this point, I wasn't sure. 
but he's showing growth. Exactly. Uh, like Gonzo will very shortly. And now, to appease the intellectuals of our audience, the great Gonzo will catch a cannonball with his bare hand as fired from a muzzle-loading cannon. Gonzo the Great is on stage, and he's getting ready to catch a cannonball with his bare hand. Crazy Harry, glad to be given permission to actually fire explosive. As the lovely assistant, Gonzo says. Fires a muzzle-loading cannon directly at Gonzo, and we just see Gonzo fly backward. Yeah. Which, we don't want Gonzo to die. Don't tell him that, though. He'll assume you're getting married. Uh, that, I mean, tax reason? No. Um, Kermit excitedly announces that Gonzo's caught the cannonball, but... I know, he caught it! He did. He did good. He did a real good job. This is two wins in a row for Gonzo. He got the note right, and he caught a cannonball. Tonight is his night, if not John's. Catching the cannonball has stretched his arm out, so he's got one (laughs) arm significantly longer than the other one. Yeah, his arm is quite, um, he's, he's got longer arms than Dr. Teeth. He does. I haven't said this in a while, so I will say there are images in tonight's episodes. There must be some episodes I saw more as a kid or connected to more as a kid, but there are images from these episodes that triggered uh, my nostalgia. Gonzo's long ass arms were one of them. I was like, oh yeah. I mean, they're hard to miss. I was just happy he caught the ball. That's really impressive. It is. He caught a cannonball. Could you catch a cannonball? I could stand in the way of one. Seen my share of cannonball catching acts, but that had something different. What was that? A survivor. Backstage, Floyd and Fozzie are making jokes about Gonzo's arm because there's no time like the present. Hey, have you heard about the new police show starring Gonzo the Great? No, what's it called? The uh, Long Arm of the Law. Kermit also goes back to talk to John. First of all, I would like to say this is a very hostile work environment for Gonzo. I don't approve. I mean, to be fair, it's a hostile work environment for... He is injured, quite possibly disabled for life, and they're making fun of him. It's a hostile work environment for everyone there. It is. (laughs) It's It's a miracle anyone survives. How many concussions? So many. Kermit talks to John backstage and finds out that John's... Not very happy, specifically because there are pigs everywhere, and his contract says specifically, no pigs. Of course, the pigs, they get kind of touchy about it. He is racist against pigs. Yeah. Um, of course, because the Muppets is an equal opportunity chaos fest, uh, the lunch encounter monsters there, and time to eat his contract. So he doesn't have that <laughs> as a point of reference. Of course, he wants to talk to his agents at that point. And <laughs> the agent part's my favorite. <laughs> mean Mama's there eating his agent. So, I just, no, no, don't downplay it. It's so funny. He's talking to Kermit. I'd like to speak to my agent, please, Kermit. Uh, oh, well, sure, John. Now, where is he? Have that. <laughs> and then it cuts to Mean Mama, and you just see a couple of legs, mm-hmm. a couple of feet disappearing down Mean Mama's gullet. <laughs> so good. And John, ever the pragmatist, decides that he's okay working with pigs. You guys are insane. Okay. But he can read the writing on the wall, and he he doesn't want to be lunch. Plus, he doesn't have representation anymore. Or a contract. He's basically an indentured servant at this point. I hope he gets paid. Nick. Nick, it's the Muppet Show. He's not going to get paid. But do you think they, like, regularly eat the guests' contracts in order to not have I to I think pay? they regularly eat the guests. It's a possibility. You get your best out of them. You get them out on stage. You get all you get all the numbers are performed. They sing. They dance for you. You do all that stuff. And, you know, yeah. You let uh, Sweetums and Mean Mama take care of them out back, you know? It's the Muppet way. Uh, it's like Legends of Ed and Tipple. No one ever saw those kids again after that guy randomly came out and grabbed them and ran off. I have no idea what that is, but it's terrifying. Continue with the show. 
So we go to a Muppet News flash where the Muppet Newsman reports that Dr. William Edgar has discovered how to synthesize a complete Italian dinner out of wool. And this is, I, I was. This one was weird. Didn't have a punchline. I was expecting John to show up in the back because the setup felt like it felt like some of those early first season ones where someone would come on and start talking about whatever, yeah. the, whatever the development is. Because it mentioned Dr. William Edgar. Yes, it gave you a specific name, so you're waiting for the uh, the on-the-wall testimonial. Mm -hmm. I felt the same way. This one was weird. It didn't have a punchline. I I just assumed that I missed it. No, he just kind of says it. I mean, yeah, there's a joke there that he's making food out of wool. They state the premise in the first sentence that that's what he does, and then they give you kind of like a couple examples of it, but that's not really all that fun. I don't don't know. It it just says a couple of things that are meant to be humorous, but there's no kind of like real punchline to it. Mm felt kind of flat to me. I need to get my head wrapped around the fact that anytime we see Rolf at the piano, it's not necessarily a UK spot. Like, we're at the end of the second season, and I'm still like, this isn't the UK spot, but it should be the UK spot. But we we go to Rolf at the piano playing Rolf's polka, accompanied by a chicken. Don't tell Gonzo. At the end of the number, the chicken clucks and rushes off stage. It says that she laid an egg, but the the egg looked kind of weird. It, well, it looked like it was already an Easter egg. Yeah, like I, it looked like he was holding an ingot of some sort. Like, <laughs> first of all, yeah, it's a chicken. We have proven that chickens are fairly skilled pianists. You get a chicken on the piano, they're pretty good so far, right? I mean, are they perfect? No, but they're way better than me. <laughs> they're better than my my five year old who's taking lessons, but they're still better than her. There's some really talented chickens. At first, it just looks like the chicken gets distracted because, you know, it's a chicken and it doesn't have a brain. Some of the dumbest creatures on God's earth. But no, it's because it's laying an egg. And then it's it's all just a setup for a pun. Usually this bird's a great performer. But tonight she laid an egg. This is the Muppets. This is how we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, and it's just a little piece of music written by uh, Derek Scott, who's of course the musical director. So they're not going to waste a license. They're not going to waste a pop song for something like this. Right? Uh, we could have him play some Beethoven, or we could save the Beethoven for a better sketch, and we'll just uh, just tinkle something on the piano. So you mentioned at the top of the show that there was a, a sketch that gave you a sort of like. Metal laugh. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's the upcoming Pigs in Space bit. Pigs in Space! Starring the acrophobic Captain Link, Hogthrob, the illustrious first mate, Miss Piggy, and the sesquipedalian Dr. Strangepaw. Yes, I very much enjoyed the parrot sketch. So there is something really entertaining about seeing Link interact with John Cleese. I thought it was awesome. I thought this number was great. It it is. It's really, it's really good. The swine truck's kind of xenophobic. I I mean, to be fair, it could be a threat on ship if an extraterrestrial randomly shows up. I'm not saying John Hurt should have been friendly to the facehugger, but like. I, I think the joke is the fact that they're pigs. So anything that's not a pig is an extraterrestrial to them, right? Because in their world, pigs are, you know, I guess they're from the planet of the pigs or something, right? So everybody else looks like an alien. Captain Link Hogthrob is on a late night watch, at which point. <laughs> I love that idea too. Link's just a link like drew the short straw. <laughs> I could absolutely see everyone on, else on that crew just being like, we're going to make Link do it. We want him to be tired. So he annoys us less. The captain has a very strict not it policy. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And they got him. The deck is invaded by Long John Silverstein, 
which is a joke that Mel Brooks would have written, but it's good. Who decides that he's laying siege to the ship, but seems to think that he's on... Deadliest pirate of the seven seas! You can't be a pirate! Of course I'm a pirate. I got a hat, a parrot, and a hook. What else should I be? A management consultant? Okay. So you're a pirate. So I'm a pirate. Hand, stupid. What? The hook was on the left hand. So he's got this parrot. The best part of this sketch is he's got a parrot on his shoulder who is such is a wise ass to him. Don't knife me now in the middle of laying siege. <coughs> going to spend the evening at home. No. It's always the same. He does refer to it at one point as an ex-parrot. And uh, yeah, the fact that John Cleese comes in and has a giant scene with a parrot. It's just kind of a kind of a joke on its own. I was entertained when he pulled the uh, the hook out and then switched hands. Yeah, that was good too. Like, and the parrot calls him out on it. The parrot. That's the first thing the parrot says. I think is like it's supposed to be on your other other hand, idiot. This was a good long sketch. Mm-hmm. Really took its time because yeah. Well, but but I wrote the same thing too. Link and John were really good together. Oh yeah. And also, I think I had a, it. What it reminded me of is in Muppet Treasure Island. You have. Tim Curry playing Long John Silver in that. Mm. And while they're not both pythons, they're both British comedians from a similar era. Although, is he dating the parrot in this? They're a couple, aren't they? I feel like he and the parrot are a couple in the same sense that Statler and Waldorf are. They, but they, they bicker like a married couple. Mm. Oh, you used to take me out all the time. Later, later. You don't love me anymore. Of course I love you. I am working now. And you're making a lousy job of it. You want to be an ex-parrot? A lot of fun. A lot of fun. It was great. It, like, I, we're, we're making the list in this, or some of the lists for the end of series, or even end of season, and this could be on it. <laughs> now that was hilarious. Yes, it was really <laughs> funny. You suppose they meant it to be? From there, we move backstage again, where Fozzie, ever the opportunist, uh, not as much as Scooter, but probably second. You're forgetting Miss Piggy Lee. Fair. Fair. Miss Piggy might top Scooter. Those two I, are neck and neck. I, I, I do believe she tops Scooter. Fozzie irritates Gonzo because his arm's long, and if his arm's long, you, you might as well use it as a clothesline. <laughs> it's just a simple little visual gag. Yeah, it's great. And Fozzie being very, very sensitive and listening without listening, it's it's nice. It's like, no, I, I feel your pain, Gonzo, but at the same time, the sheets aren't going to dry themselves. He's utilitarian. Friends help friends out. One question I have as we move into the ad, the dance bit, which is all fly in my soup jokes, which... All of them. I guess we can just leave that there. Do Kermit and Miss Mousie have an on-again, off-again thing? Does Does Kermit's heart know. belong to Miss Mousie until he finally succumbs to Stockholm Syndrome and decides, I'm just going to go with Miss Piggy? Like, Oh, he never decides to go with Miss Piggy, first of all. Never. He still hasn't decided to go with her. Here's what I, here's my head canon. They're not a thing anymore, but every once in a while their job requires them to work together. And they're professionals. Like John Cleese and his wife doing the second season of Faulty Towers. Hmm. That's how I see it. Waiter, there's a fly in my soup. And a waiter says, what's the matter? You ordered a mosquito? <laughs> so I said to the waiter, I said, what's this fly doing in my alphabet soup? And he said, standing in for the apostrophe. Yeah, it's just literally five, four or five, there's a fly in my soup jokes. I mean, 
that kind of thing was old hat when I was little. I, I assume that it's still old at this point. This is the Muppets, man. We're not going for good jokes. <laughs> Sometimes we get them, bad. though. Right, but we're going for hacky jokes, right? This is supposed to be hacky. It does really show, in my opinion, though, how far at the dance has fallen in their priorities. Like, everyone in it's a whatnot. You know, like, it used to be they would get a whole bunch of the characters in there, different personalities. Now they're all whatnots. Frank doesn't even bother to change his voice when he talks with one of them. It sounds just like Piggy. So I said to the waiter, I said, waiter, what's this fly doing in my soup? And the waiter said, looks like the backstroke. Now they feel more like filler than they used to be. Yeah. They used to feel like they were one of the, not premiere, but they were one of the weekly bits and now they're starting to feel like filler oh now we have a very complex uk spot <laughs> so this is something that i i assume was just never going to make it past the censors in the states she's pregnant nick the uk spot this week has a very pregnant miss piggy and a kermit that's very easily dodging a dodging a, a shotgun wedding apparently yeah I, I wrote down is this a song about a shotgun wedding i don't think it is because there's no one there with a shotgun so they come so so Piggy has now they, they note in the show that it's fake. Piggy comes out looking very pregnant in a wedding dress, and she sings a song called Waiting at the Church. I'm in a nice bit of trouble, I must confess. Somebody with me has had a game. I should by now be a proud and happy bride, but I've still got to keep my single name. Which is uh, another British music hall number. I did want to point out that there was an album that came out only in the UK. It was like a, an EP, you know, like two songs on each side type of thing that had the recordings of the Muppets doing the music hall songs that they have done on the show. Uh, this is being the fourth one. We've already seen the other three. Never came out in the US. Can't find a copy of it anywhere. But just wanted to point that out. They had that on Muppet Wiki that, uh, that it was originally part of this little EP they released. Look how it did upset me. He sent me round a note. Here's the very note. This is what he wrote. Can't get away to marry you today. My wife won't let me. This is a song about a woman who gets knocked up, and then she finds like a rich man to marry to take care of her, and then he doesn't show up to the wedding. This is the Muppet movie we need to see. Probably not. There was I. Waiting at the church, waiting at the church, waiting at the church. When I found he left me in the lurch, Lord, how it did upset me. Okay, I loved this. I absolutely loved this. But the reason I love this is Kermit plays a great cad, mm -hmm. but he's playing it as a character. That's what they need to. That's what they need to learn. They need to learn that Kermit plays a great cad. He shouldn't be one. <laughs> Never go full method. Right, like off stage, but he's great coming in, just like the, um, what was the song? Uh, How could you believe me when I said I love you when you know I've been a liar all my life? That was a great one. Kermit plays a great Gaston, you know, or whatever, fill in your favorite Disney pompous villain. This was a lot of fun, I thought. Mm -hmm. It's a great bit. Only a UK spot, too, which is a shame, so I didn't see this as a kid. I don't think it would have made it past the censors in the States. There's nothing obscene in it. So we, uh, we go out again, and I believe this is supposed to be, this was originally supposed to be a number between Robin and John, but John's uh, unavailable at the moment. Robin fights another singing partner. They've worked together before. True, but in a very different context. 
Okay, so last time Sweetums was trying to kill him. Right, and they've since reconciled, and Sweetums is, well, um, sweet. He just wanted to make some froggy hash. Wally, Wally, froggy, get mighty back. Don't see what the problem is. It's it's a solid number. It is. It's a song called Two Lost Souls from the 1955 musical Damn Yankees, written by Richard Adler and Jerry Ross. We're two lost souls on the highway of life. We ain't even got a sister or brother. But ain't it just great? Ain't it just grand? We got each other. I'm just painfully aware of how easily Robin would fit inside of Sweetums' mouth, and so I was worried for him in the same way that I used to be worried about the candelabra on Rolf's piano. Yeah, um, this was another triggered memory of mine, the two of them singing this song together. I couldn't have told you ahead of time what the song was, or any of the words, or even who was singing it, but as soon as it happened, I was like, well, I know this. Two lost souls on the highway of life, and there is no one with whom we would rather say ain't it just great, ain't it just grand, we've got each other. I think there's something very sweet and a lot of fun about the vast difference in between the si- their size and their voice. But there's also an always an undeniable chemistry between Jerry Nelson and Richard Hunt. And so I, I think, you know, there's just kind of an inherent sweetness when they work together in something like this. Where they, When they sing a song together, I just always find it sweet. I can't imagine it with John singing. No, it was never meant to have John singing. <laughs> you know. It was never meant to. Mr. Please, what am I gonna do? Poor, poor Donzo. So, we go backstage again and Floyd and Fozzie are at it again, or probably still. What is red and woolly and five feet long? Which honestly sounds like the setup for a much dirtier joke. <laughs> it does. It does. Fozzie says, I don't know, Floyd, what's red and woolly and five feet long? And he says, A mitten for Gonzo the Great. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, just what the world needs. Humorous hip persons. And Gonzo is used to people not really respecting him, but I think it feels different this time because this is people getting on his case for succeeding. Yeah, he did a good job. Like I, I did like this. I believe in this one uh, earlier on, Cleese referred to Gonzo as, uh, what is it? The, uh, the one that catches the cannons or... Uh, the ugly, disgusting one who catches cannonballs. <laughs> But what do we do? If you're Gonzo or you're Fozzie and you're, and you're feeling down at about this part of the episode, where do you go? You would go and find some place to sing a song to make yourself feel better. You would just go to the guest star. And John, known for... To, to pep you up, you know? Honestly, giving John a little bit of credit here, he was trying to help. He wasn't just... He was. He didn't just send him out of his dressing room or be like, oh, go catch a cannon with the other arm. He was like, you know what? Let's see if we can work on this. It's so funny. It, rem- it reminded me of the Peter Sellers thing with, with Link. Mm-hmm. This one's more, even more biologically impossible, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Gonzo's kind of a weirdo, so it, it tracks. But John helps by stretching his other arm out, which means He's that... Skeksis, not a weirdo. Yeah. Proto-Skeksis? Is he the Chihuahua, the Skeksis? Is that what's going on? Is he the Alpha Skeksis? I, I feel like the other Skeksis are just like Irish wolfhounds, and then this is the Chihuahua of them. No. And it's- He's the Mogwai. He's the Mogwai. <laughs> they felt him after midnight. He's the cute, sweet one. But if you get Gonzo wet, wet or feed him after midnight, he turns into a Skeksis. Or, you know, maybe it, maybe it's not that simple. Maybe you can still feed him after midnight, but you don't have him outside during the Great Conjunction. Something like that. 
if you get him wet, he splits into a mystic and a skexis. He is the uh, Ur being. <laughs> Urskex? Yeah, yeah, the Urskex, right. John pulls one of Gonzo's arms and helps match it up to make sure that they're the right length, which they're a matching length. But uh, he does it. He does what he says he's going to do. Exactly. He just goes the wrong way. It's it goes the long way. Like it. It doesn't make his arms shorter. It just means that he's got two long arms now. It's sort of like those yeah. old like slappy hand things that you would get out of twenty five cent machine or fifty cent machine. And Gonzo's like, but wait, I can't tie my shoes. Which I mean, nominally yeah. he still could. He just have to flop around until he did. But here's my question. That's your first priority. Someone just stretched out your arms, so they're both, I don't know, what, four and a half feet long? And his first thought, his first thought was, what about tying my shoes? Not how do I eat? Not how do I use the bathroom? Not how do I, how do, not how do I get dressed? Not how do I live? Not, not how do I, my, does my body handle the circulation for limbs this size? None of that. It's how do I tie my shoes? But let's think about this for a second. Priorities, though. kid. Throughout the course of Gonzo's life, how often has Gonzo received positive reinforcement? And what percentage of that is given to him learning to tie his shoes successfully? That could be the last time he did he did the right thing. But Gonzo can't tie his shoes. And then he pulls the arms out again. And Gonzo's just a, a writhing mass of limbs. Yeah, he looks kind of like an octopus. A little bit. Or like a... He looks like half an octopus. It reminded me of some of those early wrestling sketches. Um, just without something to, to wrap around. Hey all, this is Kermit the Frog talking to you from the planet Kuzbane, where I'm about to interview one of the most unusual of the Kuzbanians. I refer to the Kuzbanian Spoobal. From there, we return to the planet Kuzbane, which honestly... This one gets dark. This gets dark. It does, but I, I'm always surprised when we go back there, because I feel like I anytime we're on Kuzbane, I just want to see the uh, Galia Hoopoop. This goes a place where I was not, I was not ready for. So, when I was young... And watching a lot of Nick Jr., there was a character on Nick Jr., which was, I'm going to call it efficient rather than lazy, but there was a character named Face, which was just a smiling face that talked to you from your screen. And sometimes he would change color, or he would pivot 90 degrees. And the talking face inside of the jar made me think of that, but crossed with, like, the Phantasm movies, from which I also shouldn't have seen at a young age. Mm -hmm. uh, but the old Phantasm horror movies and, like, the entire mood for those. I thought it looked like a decapitated Kool-Aid man. That too, actually, yeah. Kermit reports from Planet Kuzbane wearing his iconic coat. He interviews the Kuzbanian Spoobal. Spoobal. What a good word. Can we talk about that for a second? Spoobal. Spoobal. What a good word. It's, it's a, a weirdly word. evocative one, but what it's evoking, I'm not sure. It's an alien that is made entirely of liquid. Uh, sort of like blubber, I guess. Yeah, or the Ghostbusters 2 goo or something. Yeah, it's weird. An anteater-looking Muppet shows up at the end of the <laughs> yep. sketch. Well, yeah, Kermit, like, they, they have a conversation, and then Kermit turns away to say, this is Kermit the Frog reporting from Coosbane, and while he's not looking, this, yeah, this other alien sticks first sticks his head in the frame to, like, look at us. Like, for a second, it looks like it's like a high mom moment. Mm. And, yeah, and then he sticks his snoot into the thing and just just uh, <laughs> drinks, <laughs> drinks the spooble. Spooble. Now, we had that other alien, I forget the name of it, that were very tasty on Coosbane. Yeah, the one that kept, uh, like, changing forms. So maybe there's also, maybe also on Coosbane, the primary source of liquid nutrients comes from spoobles. Spooble. I just want to find out that Coosbane is Space Australia and everything there has evolved to kill everything else there. I really do think it is a savage land without, you know, the X-Men or... <laughs> like that. Yeah, I, I I screamed at the end. Felt like an old man. I was like, what the hell are you crazy kids doing? It's just too violent. 
poor Spooble. Spooble. He was dehydrated, and <laughs> poor he Spooble. needed to solve that problem. From there, we go to John's final number, The Impossible Dream. And I actually really liked how they set this up, because John has been playing such a... Uh, I guess we'll call him an inflexible person this episode. And he wanted to make it very clear that he didn't really care that he was on The Muppet Show, and we that's where you do old show tunes. He wanted to make it very clear that he didn't do that. And Kermit, ostensibly tired of John's shit, is just like, cool, we're going to work around whatever he says. This is an improv exercise. Go. What's going on? Oh, well, nothing. You just missed your cue, that's all. What? See, that was an eight-bar intro, and then you're supposed to sing, to dream the impossible dream, you know, like that. You can't be serious. Oh, yeah. Kermit, I don't do old show tunes. Oh, oh well, I, I, I'm sorry. That, that, that's our mistake. I, I'm sorry. We just got confused. Uh, I, we'll just take it out. Uh, curtains! The curtain closes and opens again. And John's dressed for a Wagnerian opera number. And Sweetums is singing Ride of the Valkyries. To which, uh, <laughs> I, I love how much more time Sweetums is getting. John objects, and Kermit asks for another chance, and John, being uh, as understanding and charitable as he is, a British gentleman, decides that he's going to allow them another shot, and the co- the camera, or sorry, the curtain opens for a third time, where he's dressed for a Mexican maraca solo, including like this weird, not quite Fu Manchu mustache, that's not, it's, it's on top of his regular mustache, it's not very well attached. <laughs> it's like he's, he already has a mustache. <laughs> It's trying to give him, like, a handlebar, yeah, like a big handlebar mustache. But the thing is, you can tell, like, the glue's falling off. (laughs) Because it's not meant to adhere to hair. That's either a joke or the best they could do, like you said, because it's not, because it's a mustache on top of the mustache. By the way, in in case anyone's offended by this, he is too. Yeah, he's, he's very upset by this. He's also, people have invaded his personal space. They took his old clothes off. They put new ones on very quickly. We have the Glee Club of pigs and chickens and monsters and so many other things that John probably didn't want to perform with. Come on and start singing in response to the things that he does. It becomes temptation. Kind of does. It becomes temptation. There is no way I'll do a song. There is no way he'll do a song. We'll stop this at once. We will stop this at once. This is not funny. Oh, we hope this is funny. Right. I'm leaving. She's leaving. He came into our life, but now he's leaving. I love the idea of all of the Muppets just sort of being like, we're done with John's shit, so he's going to do this bit, or we will do this bit around him. You will be happy, you will be joyful, you will sing this wonderful song. The song, of course, is from uh, Man of La Mancha, which is, you know, a musical based on Don Quixote, which I reference Don Quixote in a way that an intellectual reference is Don Quixote, but I've never read Don Quixote, so I just hope nobody ever actually asks me about it. It's worth a read. I can mention Poncho, and I can mention Windmills and, and stuff like that, and I know the names and stuff, and so I float by on that, but if anyone's ever like, hey, you want to talk about Don Quixote? I'm going to be like, uh, I left my horse double parked. Don Quixote is worth reading because it's another great example of the overlap between comedy and tragedy. I think the image of John with his half ass mustache, 
and his poncho and his hat, reluctantly singing with the Muppets is probably the most enduring image from this episode. When I think of the John Cleese episode, I think of this. Mm. I think of this moment where they're all gathered around him and he is, against his will, singing a big musical show tune. You were supposed to be my host! How can you do this to me? Kermit, I am your guest! This is your guest to follow that star No matter how hopeless No matter how The last image of the episode with John coming out with his record, is that an actual record? Does that actually exist? <laughs> no. Because I, no. I mean, does he sing much? I, I feel like he doesn't sing no, very that, much. No, the, the joke is that at the end of the episode, he finally sang. <laughs> and that by the end of the credits, he already has a record deal. But yeah, he comes out with an album. This is John Cleese, A Man and His Music. No, that does not exist. <laughs> What'd you think of this one? I liked it. Um, I thought it was a pretty solid episode. It doesn't make me think of the Julie Andrews episode, but it does in the same sense that the Julie Andrews episode is one of the ones that I would look at as an archetypal episode of The Muppet Show. This fits that, too. I agree. I agree. I think this is a a prime season two episode. Spooble. It's The Muppet Show with our special guest star, Miss Cloris Leachman. Well, we've come to episode 224. That's the season finale. The season finale. Hosted by Cloris Leachman. So you were saying earlier that uh, Cloris Leachman is one of those people in your life that's like always been old. Always been old. It's it's weird seeing her in this episode. Is it? Because in here, she's still like, God, what is she? She's like 50? So I, I first knew her in Malcolm in the Middle when she oh, could have yeah, okay. played Baba Yaga. <laughs> yeah. I've loved her in everything that I've seen her in. Um, I think she's got a role in Young Frankenstein. I still have to get around. Yeah, I was going to say, do you love her in Young Frankenstein, Nick? I like the idea of loving her in Young Frankenstein. I will have to watch it. And you will. And you will. Uh, let's see. So Cloris Leachman was born on April 30th, 1926 in Des Moines, Iowa. So in the episode when she says that she was born in Iowa, she's not lying. Uh, Cloris, uh, and that is her name, by the way. Her name is Cloris Leachman. Um, I don't think we've had a whole lot of guest stars that actually don't use a stage name. Um, even if it was just like um, Teresa Brewer spelling it differently. I know John uh, Cleese used his real name, I think, right? But so many of them have had stage names. It was just like, oh, no, her name was just Cloris Leachman. Cloris grew up in Iowa, the oldest of three daughters, and attended Theodore Roosevelt High School in Des Moines. While attending, she would appear in youth plays on the weekend at nearby Drake University. And after high school, she would get into and attend Northwestern in Chicago, which you know, is a good, pretty good school. She was an, a member of the Gamma Phi Delta a sorority and was a classmate of future perennial Hollywood Square Paul Lind, who has come up on this show many times in these bios, and I refuse to do any more reading about him. I just know he was on Hollywood Squares a lot. In 1946, Cloris competed in the Miss America pageant as Miss Chicago. She placed 16th, which ain't shabby, and that earned her a scholarship to study acting under the legendary Elia Kazan at the legendary Actors Studio in New York. There she met and became friends with Marlon Brando, whom she later wrote a memoir about. They were really good friends. She got a role uh, as a replacement in the original Broadway run of South Pacific, and then did a production of William Inge's Comeback Little Sheba, uh, but she left the show before it got to Broadway, because a little-known actress named Catherine Hepburn asked Cloris to co-star with her in a production of As You Like It. And when both Catherine Hepburn and The Bard call... Who was she to ignore that, you know? Cloris had a couple of roles like that, actually. She was in the original Broadway cast of The Crucible. You've probably heard of that one. I have. 
You were probably forced to read it in high school. After a few preview performances, Leachman left the show the day before the opening night. And they had sold the show a little on her being in it. And she was on all the programs and stuff. And I couldn't find out why she bailed. But it kind of seems to be a theme with her. More to that point, on TV, she was briefly the mother of Lassie's owner, Timmy. Uh, but she left late in her only season due to contract disputes. John Provost, who played Timmy said, quote, Cloris did not feel particularly challenged by the role. Basically, when she realized that all she'd be doing was baking cookies, she wanted out. She was replaced by June Lockhart by the end of the season. There's this sense of restlessness I get from her, even this early on in her career. You know, she doesn't stick with things or she gets bored with things, but, uh, or personality. I don't know what it is, but she's got this sense of, uh, yeah, of restlessness. She made her feature film debut in 1947 as an extra, but her first real lead in a movie was in Robert Aldrich's 1955 film noir Kiss Me Deadly with Ralph Meeker, which is one of the all-time great film noirs. And it features, for people out there, it features a mysterious briefcase that glows with when you open it up as it's MacGuffin, which probably sounds familiar to you, but not because you've seen Kiss Me Deadly. Is that what I think it is? That's what I think it is. She was in a TV movie with Paul Newman and Lee Marvin called The Rack in 56 and would later appear with uh, Paul Newman again with a brief role in, of course, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid 13 years later. She did appearances on Rawhide. Uh, She did the Twilight Zone episode It's a Good Life, which is considered one of the best of the series. And when I say considered, I mean by me and by other people, too. It is a really good episode. You're a very bad man and you keep thinking bad thoughts about me. It's chilling, groundbreaking television. Uh, It really is. But this isn't a Rod Sterling podcast. Look for that from Nick after we're done with this (laughs) podcast. She would also appear in a sequel, It's Still a Good Life, for the 2002 UPN revival of the show, but it was not as... Okay, I haven't seen it, but I'm going to assume it was not as good. (laughs) She also did an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, which by my math puts her just an outer limits shy of the spooky anthology show trifecta. Cloris did more TV. She did a Gunsmoke, an episode of Laramie, uh, Perry Mason. This was all in like the 60s. And then it's going to stun you to hear the name of this show again. You can take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile. Mary Tyler Moore. Cloris showed up on the MTMS as a character named Phyllis Lindstrom, who was a recurring character soon, and like all recurring characters on that show, eventually got her own spinoff called Phyllis, which ran for two seasons and netted Leachman a Golden Globe, part of the Mary Tyler Moore cinematic universe. She has appeared in three Mel Brooks films. Because here on Lunatic Daring, if a guest worked with Mel Brooks, you're going to hear about it. Her first and most notable was in Young Frankenstein, <coughs> Nick, while she played the famous Fabrucker. She was also in High Anxiety, and she played Madame Defarge in the French Revolution segment of History of the she World was. Part 1. Oh, she was amazing in that. The meeting begins. Fellow wretches, I don't have to tell you. That poverty stalks the streets of Paris. Yes. Families don't even have enough money for bread. No. We are down to almost nothing. Last week, I myself ran out of wool. Oh. We have no rights. Oh. We have no say. No. We have no. 
no dignity. No. We are so poor. We do not even have a language. Just a stupid accent. One of Cloris's biggest roles would come in 1971 in Peter Bogdanovich's adaptation of Larry McMurtry's book, The Last Picture Show. The film, which also starred Jeff Bridges, Ellen Burstyn, and Sybil Shepard, was a commercial and critical success, was nominated for eight Oscars, and is a seminal film in the Hollywood renaissance of the 1970s. While filming, director Bogdanovich told Cloris that she would win an Oscar for her role as Ruth Popper, a high school teacher's neglected wife who embarks on an affair. And she did. It was one of the two Academy Awards the film took home. What am I doing apologizing to you? Why am I always apologizing to you, you little bastard? Three months I've been apologizing to you without you even being here. I haven't done anything wrong. Why can't I quit apologizing? You're the one ought to be sorry. I wouldn't still be in my bathroom if it hadn't been for you. I had my clothes on hours ago. You're the one made me quit caring if I got dressed or not. In 1987, she hosted the VHS releases of the Schoolhouse Rock cartoons. Um, She did a production of Hansel and Gretel for TV. She replaced Charlotte Ray for the last two seasons of Facts of Life, a sentence that only makes sense to you if you are 40 years or older. She did some voice work, uh, a few of them. Uh, She did the My Little Pony movie back in 1986. She did a troll in Central Park. She played a character in The Iron Giant. And she dubbed the Sky Pirate Dola in Miyazaki's masterpiece Castle in the Sky. That one I have seen. She played the grandmother on Malcolm in the Middle, like you referenced, uh, which netted her an Emmy in 2006. She was nominated for playing the part for six years straight, despite not being a regular on the show. She was amazing every time she was on. Mom, would you please pass the potatoes? I think you've had more than enough potatoes. Does the chair have to break before you stop eating? Let's see. uh, She was in Spanglish with Adam Sandler. She was in the remake of The Longest Yard, also with Adam Sandler. She was in the very underrated, I think, family superhero comedy Sky High with Kurt Russell and uh, Daniel Panabaker. From 2010 to 2014, she starred as the matriarch of a family for the Fox sitcom Raising Hope, for which she was nominated for an Emmy. But by then, that was no special occasion for her. Cloris won a record-setting eight primetime Emmys and was nominated more than 20 times. Her final two roles were, um, she was in season two of the Showtime series American Gods, and then she was in a film called Not to Forget in 2021, alongside four other Oscar winners, Lou Gossett Jr. for An Officer and a Gentleman, Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon, George Chakras for West Side Story, and Olympia Dukakis for Moonstruck. Cloris published her autobiography entitled Cloris, My Autobiography in March of 2009. She was married once from 1942 to 1979 and had five children. She was a vegetarian and an atheist, which means she was super fun at parties and uh, did a lot of work with the PTA. Her star on the Walk of Fame, which was dedicated in 1980, is on the 6400 block of Hollywood Boulevard in front of the famous Hollywood Pacific Movie Theater, which closed its doors in 1994 after it sustained damage from the Northridge earthquake. On January 27th, 2021, the day before we released our Rita Moreno episode, Cloris Leachman died in her sleep at her home in California at the age of 94. Her cause of death was a stroke with COVID-19 as a contributing factor, which is sobering and immediate and a reminder of the shit show that the last year has been. But um, 94 is a good run, and she had an amazing career. And I love this episode. She might be... I have to go back through and look, but I think of our guests so far, she might be the the one whose work I'm most familiar with or that I've seen the most of. Wasn't she also in Beer Fest? I skipped. I, I, she was in Beer Fest. I, I apologize. My film school training didn't uh, allow me to write it down. <laughs> it's fair. 
This is episode uh, number 224, produced in early December 1977. It aired in February 1978 in the UK and uh, in uh, May in New York 1978. This is a Peter Harris joint, so Peter Harris coming in to direct the uh, season finale. We do have a new face. It's kind of a face. It's kind of a face. (laughs) It's a character named Chop Liver. Uh, Chop Liver is a space alien. He is going to appear in a handful more, so I'm going to include him amongst the new faces. But he has no regular performer. He reminds me of like a little bit of the trash heap and a I little bit of that. like Pizza the Hut. Sort of like an amorphous blob. Cloris Leachman, 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Leachman. Okay, Scooter, I'll be ready. And thank you for this lunch. Just hope he remember that... I don't eat meat of any kind. My family and I are attempting to wean ourselves off of meat. Uh, we're doing meatless Mondays. We're trying to make that more and more of a thing. We're trying to get meat out of our diet. But come on, it takes her 13 seconds to mention she's a vegetarian. Isn't that the most vegetarian thing anyone can do? It's literally 13 seconds. <laughs> Let's just get this cat out of the bag right away. Maybe she was like, I'll do your show, but I get to do a PETA ad up front. Honestly, not the most obnoxious PETA ad I've seen. Oh, the pigs and the cow cow and stuff, they all come out and they're all cheering her because she doesn't eat meat. And then uh, she goes, yeah, that's right, I'm a vegetarian. And she opens up the thing and it's the singing fruit on the plate and they all start to boo her, which I thought was very cute. <laughs> and it reminds me of the line from A Muppet Christmas Carol. Mother always taught me never eat singing food. This is a fairly high concept episode. I've been looking forward to this one all season. So Kermit comes out to introduce the show. Welcome to the Muppet Show. Hey, you're going to love tonight's show because our special guest is the star of television and films, Miss Cloris Leachman. But first, first, let's get things yeah. started. <laughs> what are you guys doing? Pigs are taking over the show. Yeah. Yes. You'll never get away with it. Want to bet? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We did it. We did it. <laughs> and as he starts to talk, Two pigs come out, throw a black bag over Kermit's head, and drag him off stage. It's like at a Sicario or something. They drag him off stage and they go, we're taking over the show. This is the episode with the pig takeover. That is the backstage. That's not the backstage story. That's the whole story. The pigs are taking over the show. They are fine. They are tired of the pig jokes. They're tired of the bacon jokes, although they're going to make their own later. So It's different when they do it. <laughs> I guess so. The the pigs have taken over the show, including and, and even Doctor Strange Pork. He seems to be one of the leaders. Like I don't think he's Castro, but he's like Che, maybe. I think Doctor Strange Pork likes living and obfuscating stupidity. If if people don't see him coming, then so then we are introduced to. Now I didn't mention these characters in the intro because we're not going to see them again. So they're not technically new characters. But is this what their child would look like? Kermit is replaced by a character named Kermit the Pig. Kermit the Pig, yeah! Hey, welcome to the Muppet Show, but tonight, let's open the festivities with a- Oh my, Buster, what's going on here? Where's my frog? Who is a green pig with a collar, but with pig ears. And I didn't think about the fact that this is what their, like, grown son would look like, but you're not wrong. Technically, the way they've done it is that the girls are pigs and the boys are frogs. But this is a true hybrid of a pig and a frog, and it, it ain't pleasant. No. Kermit the Pig is played by Dave Goles very well. And we're going to see the pigs try to put on the Muppet Show. Piggy comes out as as the as a representative, you know, as someone who can um, bridge the gap between both worlds. The pig walker, as it were. <laughs> yes, yeah, the pig whisperer. Where's my frog, huh? What happened to him? But Miss Piggy, you're starring in the opening number. I don't care if you touch one flipper of my frog. <laughs> I'm starring in the opening number. Of course, you're the biggest pig star we've got. 
We'll talk about what's his name later. Well, we can talk about this later. <laughs> because told you, man. The only thing that, yeah, she likes the frog, but she likes getting on stage more. So then we get the opening number. A lot of American flags waving. Now, let's get the show rolling with a little pig music. Ah! And the pigs, including Link and Strange Pork and Annie Sue, come out and sing That's Entertainment as the big opening number, Entertainment. That's Entertainment is from uh, the musical Bandwagon. That's Entertainment. It might be a fight like you see on the screen. A swain getting slain for a lovely queen. Some great Shakespearean scene where a ghost and a prince meet. And everyone ends in Miss Me. I mean, it's at this point, I'm, I'm buckling up to see what, what they're going to do for the show because the pigs have taken over. I, I thought it was fine. I thought it was a solid number. I love that it wasn't, it's kind of funny and maybe this isn't intentional. I love that it wasn't spectacular. Mm-hmm. But what what's happened to Kermit and our heroes uh, while the pigs have taken over? What have they done to them? They've thrown them into the boiler room. <laughs> into the boiler room. Which and that where and that where Freddy lives? Well, it's where he dies. But like, they don't throw all of our heroes in there. So I'm wondering what they did with the rest of them. <laughs> well, yeah. So so Kermit's thrown into the boiler room, and Fozzie's already there. And Fozzie's trying to make a plan to escape. Of course we'll get out of here, because I, the bear, have a plan. Yeah? I am going to tie some sheets together, and we will slip out the window. What window? <laughs> no window! <laughs> oh, come in! Come in! We gotta bust out of here! <laughs> Frank is, again, Frank's on fire here. Uh, Fozzie's so good in this episode. But there's a phone. So Fozzie goes to it, uh, and the phone is working. And it's, uh, again, kids. Phones used to be attached to the wall. I'm not so sure this joke is going to work on my children. And uh, he takes the phone all the way over to Kermit, and he stretches it too far, and he pops it off the wall. By the way, you could probably fix that, though. Fozzie and Kermit are trapped in the boiler room while the pigs take over. Kermit the pig is on stage, and Cloris comes out to confront him. It's her first appearance of her, and uh, she says that he's not the real Kermit. And you are not Kermit. Yes, I am. No, no. I've seen the Muppet Show on television many times, and you don't look anything like the Muppets that I've seen. Well, but, but, but maybe it's your television set. No, it's not the set. I mean, you're 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 green, and, and you've got that darling, funny, pointy collar that, that Kermit used to wear. But you're not you're not Kermit. Oh yes, no. I am. All right, then I'll spell it out for you. You are a pig, P I G. You're not a frog, F R O. No, 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 you are not a frog, and there's nothing you can say that will ever convince me that you are a frog. Nothing. Ribbit. Has Kermit ever said ribbit? Probably not. <laughs> uh, but there's also a funny moment, too, where she's talking about, um, but even uh, where she's talking about, uh, oh, she's supposed to do a number with Sweetums. It was the end of the show. The, the number of Sweetums was supposed to be the end of the show, wasn't it? Yeah, right, right. The no- it was supposed to be later, not yet. And so the pig called, they call the pig version of Sweetums off stage, and it is a horrifying. So much nightmare fuel. So much nightmare fuel. But it's a very disturbing looking creature that is the pig version of Sweetums. But this has convinced Cloris to go on with the show because apparently she forgot her glasses. Although he does convince her that maybe it's just her TV makes them look different. 
I like that. It, it adds 10 pounds. So then we come out for, for what is basically a, a medley. This one's a little complicated. It involves uh, four different songs. I had to actually write down a summary of how this number goes. I didn't know she could sing. Chloris comes out and she's in this uh, kind of pink dress that has almost like wings or sails or whatever under the arms. I don't know what you call it. And she's in like this snowy alpine mountainscape. And she's singing uh, in, I would say she's singing in kind of an over the top operatic voice. And she's singing a piece from an operetta that is usually a duet. And then Link, dressed like a member of the Canadian Mounted Police, (laughs) appears from behind some snowy trees and joins her to sing a few lines of the duet. And then the camera stays on Link still amongst the trees, as he transitions to the next song. All the longing, seeking, striving way to journey, the burning hopes, the joy and idle tears that fall. Which is another selection from another light opera. He comes out of the trees, serenading Chloris, and she seems quite taken with him. And I remind you, he still dresses a Mountie. He does this whole thing dresses a Mountie. Even funnier. He then steps back and motions for her to take the mic, basically, and she moves into the third song, which is yet another piece from an operetta. which she sings with great drama and flair, playing more to the camera than to Link. And they sing this one as a duet too, and this is really just, this is really just a successful Wayne and Wanda number. Yeah, actually. Then we hear a snare drum and the music picks up and four pigs, also dressed as Mounties, come bouncing into the scene, singing Stout-Hearted Men. from this old Oscar Hammerstein musical from the 20s called The New Moob. Uh, Link joins in singing with them while Chloris delivers some kind of high-pitched operatic vocals as kind of accompanying them. Then as the song wraps up, the pigs start replacing the word men with the word swine in the song. And they start marching around Chloris, kind of chanting the word swine. And then Chloris and Link finish it off with a little duet. She holds her arms wide open like Scott Stapp and... uh, uh, I believe, and I believe, and I believe the last song she, uh, the last word she, the last word she sings is uh, "swine," and then uh, the pigs look at her in admiration. It keeps escalating, and I think some of my favorite Muppet numbers do that. They, uh, they just sort of escalate. But I love that Link just kind of slinks out from behind the trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just kind of appears. Why is he dressed like a Mountie, Nick? Canadian bacon. Oh, that's possible. Have you ever seen that movie, Canadian Bacon? Star John Candy is like a like a like a police officer in like Michigan, and it's directed by Michael Moore, and he ends up basically declaring war on Canada. It's not great, but uh, Canadian Bacon is probably correct. So after this number, uh, we go back to the boiler room, and now and uh, Fozzie's got a plan. 
which is amazing. Fozzie is just going to – he's got a club. And then when the when the, the next pig comes in to check on him, he's just going to knock him out and run. Works in the movies. The door opens and he cracks the per- person coming in on the skull and it turns out it's Gonzo. And uh, he says, I thought you were a pig. And Gonzo says, first he clubs me and now he insults me, which I thought was rude. But I'll, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to allow him. I'm going to give him that because the pigs are being kind of jerks right now. I mean, they did sort of take over the show and kidnap the host. And <laughs> and that's when Kermit asked him. This is a very Gonzo response, right? Because Kermit asked him how the show's going. And Gonzo's like, it's going great. They got this new MC and the audience loves him. Kermit the pig. <laughs> Kermit the pig. Easy, easy, Kermit. Don't take it so personally. And the new comedian? Fozzie the pig? Oh, is he funny? <gasps> we gotta get out of here! And uh, Fozzie Bear does not love to hear that. It's just a very gonzo moment. Ah, this show's amazing! <laughs> Uh, but God, but don't worry, Nick, because Gonzo knows a way out. Of course. He just needs a, uh, what did he request in the Shawshank Redemption? Was it Rita Hayworth? <laughs> a Rita Hayworth poster? Yeah. yeah. He just needs a Rita Hayworth poster and some time. This does have some echoes of Shawshank later as well with the hat and the smuggling out the, uh, the dirt. Mm. But, uh, yeah, so Gonzo has brought a spoon with him. Gonzo, we want escape, not eat! <laughs> we will escape! I'm gonna dig a tunnel with it. <laughs> Uh, I, I think we're going to be here a while. So then we get Fozzie's comedy act, but it's not Fozzie the bear. It's Fozzie the pig. Who's more disturbing looking, Kermit the pig or Fozzie the pig? Uh, uh, <laughs> um. I'm really hot tonight. I guess you could say the fat's in the fire. Uh. Speaking of fat. My wife is so fat that when she brings home the bacon, it takes three guys to bring home the bacon. I feel like if one of the two of them was chasing me down a dark hall, Fozzie would scare me more. Yeah, I found him to be very disconcerting. And he's also, like Fozzie the Bear, a terrible stand-up. It's really great to be here entertaining you, uh, but next year I'm going back to school. Yeah, you see, get this, you see, I still got a lot to loin. I feel like Statler and Waldorf went a little easier on him, though, didn't they? At first they do. And although they don't know it, they think it's Fozzie Bear. They're old men. They even, they're even like, I don't know, he, I think he got a haircut. Um, so he comes out and he does a bit. It's not very, and he, he doesn't do very well, which I, I liked, but, um. I wanted to I wanted to talk about this though. This is a good spot because there's a few jokes in this scene. There is a lot of pork loin, bacon, meat jokes in this. Are these pigs like very, very aware of their place in the food chain and that's why they're rebelling? Is it possible they finally realize where they are in the web? Because if that's the case, I don't blame them. I'm on their side. I think this might be the difference between Eddie Griffin doing a, a joke involving the N-word and Norm MacDonald doing a joke involving the N-word. One of those two jokes is going to go over a lot better than the other. It, there, there is, but it's just, they're so aware of the fact. It's not even though they're making fun of them being pigs. They're just like so aware of the fact that they're born to be eaten, which is very grim. Then we get, now listen, there are a lot of funny things in the show, in, in uh, on The Muppet Show, and there are funnier things than what happens next, but I don't think I have physically laughed harder and what happens next. Love it so much. <laughs> it fell off the couch. You knew it was coming too, so you're just waiting for the delivery. I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. 
<laughs> the oink, oink, oink at the end. I just couldn't take it. The Swedish pig chef. I don't know what they call him now. The Swedish pig. His Muppet Wiki calls him the Swedish pig. But uh, And it's a very simple Swedish chef skit where he just shoots corn and makes popcorn. I think he's even done this before, hasn't he? But I think it actually works this time as opposed to what usually happens. Obviously, I wanted to point out, first of all, that the chef is an irresponsible gun owner. <laughs> if this pig could step in and still get access to his firearms, because you know that's his flintlock. To be fair, I feel like a lot of the times other things on stage end up taking the chef's weapons and uh, chasing him with them. So th- that's not news. So they're just, they're just laying everywhere. <laughs> so, I mean, because that wasn't a full blunderbuss. That was like a flintlock pistol. Hmm. I have nothing else to say other than uh, it's amazing. <laughs> Actually, I did one more thing to say. So now we get vegetarians hospital. Are pigs vegetarians? I, did, I think aren't they omnivores? I thought so. Yeah, no, because uh, in Sansa in uh, Hannibal, the sequel to Sansa Lambs, the whole story is the bad guy wants to get Hannibal Lecter and feed him to the pigs. That's right. Well, yeah, there's a pig farmer is like a, a cleaner of sorts, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or it could just be the fact that they they eat meat. <laughs> I went to the extreme example of them eating human beings to hide their bodies, but I'm sure they probably will just, you know, they'd probably. And now, Vegetarian's Hospital, the story of a pig-headed quack who's gone hog wild. Here's your next case, Doctor. Oh, this is a dish of fruits and vegetables. It's all right. They have group insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Group insurance? They'd better have grape insurance. (laughs) And um, they uh, operate on a tray of fruits and vegetables. There's one one funny joke, I thought. They're looking at the vegetables, trying to figure what's wrong with them. And Piggy says, the corn has a bad ear. The potato has a bad eye. And then Piggy goes, the eggplant. But then she can't get out the joke. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. She goes, the eggplant, and then she like starts laughing before she even gets to the punchline. And the eggplant? Yes? The eggplant has a bad yolk. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, it's it's weird. This is exactly like a veterinarian's hospital sketch, pretty much. But with these two beady-eyed pigs, it's very strange. So then we get our Muppet newsflash with uh, a pig that looks like the Muppet newsman. What a surprise. It seems like he's having a much better day than he tends to, though. This is the UK spot. That's weird. Here is a Muppet News flag. The eminent research scientist, Dr. Bunsen Honeypig, today announced he had successfully converted a sow's ear into a silk purse. Dr. Honeypig is now the object of a massive civil and criminal suit by the wife of a neighborhood artist, Mrs. Vincent Van Gogh Pig. And then they make some joke about Vincent Van Gogh. But like, I'm trying to figure out, I I couldn't quite get this one. I couldn't wrap my head around this one about what was funny about it, personally. I I didn't get the joke. Maybe the joke is that there isn't really a, like, as much of a joke, but. But I did like seeing the Muppet News Pig. I thought he was, I thought he was actually the least, uh, he's the one that I was like, I wouldn't mind seeing him every week. I think he looks all right. Maybe they should alternate, you know, give the other guy a break. 
I'm of two minds because on one hand, I, I definitely love our regular Muppet newscaster, but also he, he could probably use a break. So then we go back to the boiler room, and I'd like to point out that Gonzo picked the long, wrong line of work. They're still in the same show, and Gonzo's got the wall open, and he's digging a tunnel with a spoon? Why is he wasting his time hanging from his nose while reciting Shakespeare when he should be building bridges and stuff? Gonzo is a Muppet of focus. Oh, is that what it is? That's that's interesting. That's interesting. Go with that. It's a really bad John Wick reference, which Gonzo should never. <laughs> okay. Actually, I could see Gonzo taking over for Ted Theodore Logan, but generally Gonzo should not be any Keanu Reeves role. Oh, dude, you don't you can't see him as Neo. I could see him as Neo. I could see him as Neo with the stretched out arms, with him doing like the slow backward <laughs> thing with the arm just continuing to extend. But this is pretty amazing work that Gonzo is doing. Now, it, yeah, and it becomes very Shawshank because then Fosse's like, I'm going to smuggle out the dirt in my hat. So he's got all the dirt in his hat, but then he puts it on his head. So it all just spills out all over the place. But uh, yeah, no Rita Hayworth poster or in the sh- in the story, it's a Rita Hayworth poster. In the movie, I think it's a couple different posters. It evolves over the decades. I have the screenplay for it. I've, <laughs> I've got the short story collection that it was published in. Yeah. But I've never actually seen the Shawshank Redemption. It's a classic for a reason, you know, I mean, it, it really is. But they, in the movie, but so you know, they hide it behind the poster, right? Mm. He hides the hole behind the Rita Hayworth poster. Well, the movie takes place over decades. And so the one thing they did in the film is they updated it. So I think by the time where it changes over the years, so it, it becomes Raquel Welch. And then I think by the time he escapes, it's actually Farrah Fawcett. So it just becomes, it, it instead of just being a Rita Hayworth poster, it becomes this evolving, it, it's this evolution of pinup girls throughout the decades in which. I, they didn't use, they used that. Or the short, or the novella had different posters come in to hide a growing hole, but because the title of the original is Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, so it even mentions the poster in the title. Um, anyway, Gonzo's doing a hell of a job. I'm just saying. Uh, then Piggy comes in again. Piggy, who's our walker between worlds, comes in and says, uh, "Kermit, are you guys okay? This is ridiculous. I won't stand for this." Okay, we'll just get someone to take your place. Take my place! I mean, if you want to stay here with them, we'll kill Well. Piggy has priorities, right? She does. She's a very principled pig, but those principles are largely self-serving. Because in her mind, her not doing pigs in space means it's canceled. Because she says that. She goes, we're going to have to cancel the sketch because then she still has the power and it's still her sketch. But then when they're going to replace her, she's not, uh, she's not having that. And now pigs in space. Starring the quixotic Captain Link Hogthrob, the vacuous first mate, Miss Piggy, and the somnambulistic Dr. Julius Strangefork. As we left the swine train last time, it was under attack from an alien thing. So we go to a very violent pigs in space. The ship is being attacked. Um, it looks about as good as maybe a season one Star Trek episode, effects <laughs> <laughs> wise. And uh, and I love in the narration they say they're being attacked by an alien thing. It's accurate. And while they're being attacked, they're trying to figure out what this alien is that's attacking them. Uh, Link gets obsessed with a, like a ketchup stain on his shirt. And so he's not even paying attention to all the things that are going on. And when they finally get the, they put up on the board what's attacking them and it's chopped liver. 
Nick, help me describe chopped liver. Um, so you know how he's got sunglasses. <laughs> it, yeah, it's basically like taco meat with lunch mat or with sunglasses with like a little. It also kind of looks like coral underwater. I. It's supposed to be just a pile of chopped liver. I've never actually had chopped liver, so I assume that's you're you're fine. It's just chopped up meat, right? It's like it's it's just a big pile of meat, and he appears now here. But here's my question, though: Is he Galactus? Like, what does it mean that he's is he just because he, he's just like floating there? In I space? don't think he's Galactus. I think he's you're going to know this because you co-host a Star Wars podcast, and I don't. There was an asteroid in The Empire Strikes Back, which they thought was an asteroid, but wasn't actually an asteroid. It was mm-hmm. some sort of creature. Yeah, um, space slug. It's just a space slug. There's no formal name for it. It's just called Space Slug. Space Slug. Wait, yeah, we, yeah, we're too busy naming Jawas and Ewoks and stuff. Like, I, can't I was about to say, that. every person in Mos Eisley <laughs> has a name and an action figure. You know what? I could tell you all about Momo, De- Momo Nadon, who the uh, the Hammerhead, uh, technically an Athorian. Um, they're they're a peaceful group of herbivores. Anyway, I won't get down that, that road. But yes, no, we do know the name of everybody, but I do believe it's just called Space Slug. So it's a Space Slug. Uh, chopped liver is a Space Slug. <laughs> They're like, it's chopped liver, and he's on the view screen. But, like, normally you would say, like, oh, you'd see him on the bridge of a ship. No, he's just floating in space. <laughs> and then when he talks, he talks like he's taking your order to Kosher Deli. Yeah. <laughs> they Because they say, oh, my God, he's hideous. Hideous? For one sixty nine a pound, you want beautiful? And he says it like he's Jackie Mason. It's such a, like, it's such a, I, I get the idea. I think it's uh, Richard Hunt doing it. And uh, yeah, it's Richard Hunt. And he just, yeah, he just does his best Jackie Mason impression. It's very, it's, it's, it, which is funny. It's a nice contrast, but uh, we've been introduced to Chop Liver as this. I, I think he's like, I think he's at least Silver Surfer. I think he's a Herald. What, what is Chop Liver the Herald for? Indigestion? I- That's the question, man. That's the question. I'm I'm a I'm an agnostic man. I don't I just ask the questions. I don't need the answers. Uh so then uh Scooter comes in. Now where has he been the whole time? I have a feeling he went Vichy France here, but we just don't know it. I feel like Scooter has convinced half the pigs that he's actually a pig, but he's been in hiding. Well, cause in this episode we never see backstage in the entire episode, right? We only see the boiler room and on stage. So there's a backstage story going on where the pigs, including Kermit and everybody else, are putting on a show. Or you're telling me Scooter didn't turn? I bet Scooter turned. Scooter turned in a heartbeat. Yes. Scooter's been out there as a as a collaborator. So while we've been looking at the things going on in the boiler room, Scooter has been the only non-pig Muppet on stage for a random song number that they promised him. Yes. I, I, I think it's clearly a, a Vichy France situation. Well... Kermit and, you know, Gonzo represents the French underground. Scooter is the Vichy government. Kermit's Rick from Casablanca. I don't know what, I don't know exactly, but, um, so Scooter comes in though and says the pigs are all gone because, <laughs> uh, this, this is what I like to call a war of the war of the world's ending where, uh, mm-hmm. everything just ends. <laughs> Kermit, we're free. We're free. Really? Well, what happened? Well, someone next door was holding a hog calling contest. So they all heard it and ran off. And uh, and and Fozzie runs to tell Gonzo, like, "Hey, Gonzo, you know we're free." And Gonzo can't hear him because Gonzo is one can only assume halfway to China. <laughs> get busy living or get busy dying. So then uh, we get uh, Cloris's final number. 
We take you now to a desert island where the coconuts and guest stars grow. This is fun. So she gets, so she show it, it, it opens with her kind of climbing her way up onto a, a desert island. She's been sh- stranded, shipwrecked or something. And she finds Sweetums, who is, basically has to decide whether he wants her as a friend or food. Horses are friends, not food. But he, but the first thing he does is ask her if she can make a good fondue, right? Like, like he's looking for a wife and needs someone who could cook. And now when I think of fondue, I only think of, I think of dipping stuff in chocolate or cheese, right? Mm. But I did look, I had to look it up because that line didn't make sense to me. Can you make a good fondue? I found out the third definition on dictionary.com of a fondue is a baked souffle-like dish, usually containing cheese and breadcrumbs. So there is a casserole called a fondue, and I'm going to say that that's what he's talking about because it doesn't make sense to me. Although, to ask her if she makes a good fondue does sound really 70s. Mm. He might as well ask her about her pet rock. Why did I think that was an 80s thing? Was that a 70s thing? The pet rock... Was yeah, that was a seventies thing. There's a time capsule that was buried in the year I was born, and there's a pet rock in it. It was some kind of. It was a question on my Jeopardy app on my Alexa. Mm. So Chloris is uncertain whether or not she's going to be the dish or or the guest. Um, and then Sweetums gets kind of aggressive with her, and he's chasing her around uh, the island. Uh, it didn't bother me too much. Like I said, it, it, I felt the joke is about you know it's the the joke is her getting eaten. Then she calls for help, and Dog Lion is roaming by. Dog Lion, by the way, who looks completely out of a Morris Sunday book. Mm-hmm. He looks exactly like a wild thing. Exactly. But Dog Lion is, swimming, is rowing by, right, I think? Yeah. And he pops out. Doesn't really protect her. He, she, he just gets out of the boat, and Sweetum stops chasing her, and they sing a song. To be fair, before we get to that, Sweetum's also admitted to sinking her ship. Oh, that's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's a little more nefarious. That's right. He did. He did say that. Sorry. I guess I'm an apologist. <laughs> so Dog Lion uh, comes on on onto the island, and they sing a song called "Just in Time," which is from this like '50s musical that I'd never heard of. And the idea is like she's singing, "Oh, you come just in time to save me." And they sing this song together. And at the end, Dog Lion says, "Hey, Sweetums, are we gonna? Is she the cook or the dish?" And he's like, the dish. And then he's like, of course we're going to eat her. <laughs> like, they're buddies. And then it ends with the two of them chasing her around the island in a very uh, never-ending Benny Hill sketch that only mm. ends in terror. That only And a Benny Hill number that only ends in grotesque violence. Yeah. It's like the end of Grizzly Man. It's not. It's it, it, it's uh, it's just a funny little, you know, monsters eating. I mean, listen, this is the Muppets, man. You get blowed up or you get eaten. That's the way of life. It's true. It's a circle of life from an explosion to getting eaten. Now, I don't want to get too gruesome with it, but how does this scenario end with both of them chasing her around this island? You know, humans evolved to uh, keep up amazing stamina while either chasing down prey or avoiding predators. So maybe Chloris just got in touch with that that eidetic memory and it's just like i just have to keep going rest easy kids she's gonna dive into the water she's gonna take dog lion's boat and get away back to safety that's our story and we're sticking to it the end that was me closing that me, that was me clapping but it was me closing the book the end um happily ever i i like but i like your ending better than mine which <laughs> is probably more is, realistic which looks more like an italian horror film <laughs> so um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I thought this was, uh, really funny. So then we get to the end and, um, two great things happen in the, in the, in the finale here. One, uh, we find out that it was Chloris that organized the hog calling. 
Yeah, where did those pigs come from? And where did they go? I mean, who would organize a hog calling contest? It was amazing. It was bizarre. It was easy. Cloris, you did that for us? Well, I'm from Iowa. You must be a great hog caller. Sue! But the problem is, her calling the hogs then brings the pigs back. Um, and while they're all coming back in the meantime, Gonzo, predictably, but still amazingly, uh, cracks a hole in the side of the Muppet Theater and has finally escaped. But he's probably at least 10, 12 feet off the ground. I have no idea where he is. That was one of, like, I, I'm of two minds because there's a lot of great things that happened on this episode. But I also, Cloris Leachman seemed like she was really excited and happy to be there. And it feels like she was kind of underused. She maybe was a little bit, yeah. And, I mean, it's a concept episode, and it's, the the pigs taking over was a great note, but it almost, there's so many guests that we've seen that don't play as well with the Muppets that I almost wish that it had been used on one of their episodes. Um, granted, her being from Iowa and being able to do the, the pig call might have been the, the clincher for that, but still. I really like her on this episode. However, this episode is a Muppet episode. But in a way that doesn't mean like the guest stars are not entity. This is a this is like, and we're gonna get more of these. This is a story that is just all about them. Like this could, there don't need to be any humans in this story. But and the thing is, she plays very well with the Muppets when she is on screen. She does. She does great. She's not a bad guest for not being as present as some of the other ones have been. It's just no. I think she's a great guest. Actually, I think she's a great guest. I think she's very talented. I think in her opera number, her I think that thing with her and Link is very funny. And I think they both performed the hell out of it. And her and Jim seem to really kind of spark and, 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 and it's a really good number. So I think, I think in the stuff that she does, she kills it. Uh, so what'd you think? It was, it was a solid episode. I liked it a lot. Um, it's a good way to go out go out for the season. Yeah. There's like the, the first season, I, I wouldn't say that it had an arc, but the way that the last episode hit, and I, I guess it was just because we knew that certain people were leaving. It felt like it, did bring more of a, a sense of closure to it, but this is still a good episode to go out on. Next time, our top five, top fives. So Nick, uh, that's that's season two. It's all over. Our season two is not over. It's the end of the second season of The Muppet Show, but we have one more episode left. We will be back next week with our, what do we call it? Our wrap-up show? Yeah, our wrap-up show is a good name for it. You know, we'll have a few lists. We'll talk about what we liked a little bit. We'll have maybe about what we didn't. And, uh, yeah, just give a little bit of a summary of the show and uh, move it and uh, help us transition into what will probably be a, a, f- a few weeks off. And then into a little movie you may have you may have seen called The Muppet Movie. I don't think I've actually seen The Muppet Movie. What? Record scratch. What? It, there was never really a good time to bring it up. And, like, you reacted so poorly to the, the young Frankenstein thing. <laughs> gonna be this is gonna be amazing though this is gonna be amazing it's truly one of the great comedies of the 1970s it's not just a it's a oh i can't this is so exciting this is so exciting you at least know the rainbow connection yes i know the rainbow connection okay you know it's from that movie yes so you guys have that to look forward to. You have to uh, you have to hear Nick's reaction to seeing the Muppet movie for the first time but uh, until and we'll, we'll talk to you then so I'm Chad I'm Nick and uh, we'll 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 see you soon. A 
feat of lunatic daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. That was weird. I'll tell the world. Go ahead. That was weird. Weird. <laughs> weird. Weird. Weird.